Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Uh, I'm Colin, the main host, and with me, I've got a couple co-hosts tonight. Uh, first off, I've got Susan. Hola. Next, I've got Kevin. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and, lastly, <laughs> we, <laughs> and lastly, we have Kristen. Hello. So, uh, first off, welcome everybody to our winter solstice special extravaganza. Um, <laughs> happy holidays, everything. Uh, we're just uh, we're so excited to be able to do this, and uh, to uh, we're going to be talking about the winter solstice episodes from book one of Avatar: The Last Airbender, uh, episode part one, uh, the Spirit World, and part two, Avatar: Roku. Um, so yeah, uh, first I kind of wanted to just kind of start it off first and uh, just uh, hear any kind of uh, either winter solstice or holiday traditions or things that you guys really like kind of this time of year and everything. What are you guys doing to celebrate? I actually just learned a new tradition from a friend of mine and I'm kind of excited because I'm surprised I hadn't thought of it. Um, being somebody who works in an industry with animals, a lot of my friends and I have a lot of animal stuff. Um, I normally don't do a lot of Christmassy stuff. I usually just leave up Halloween stuff and we just call it scary Christmas. Um, <laughs> but I do have a lot of like animal ornaments that I'm slowly accumulating. And she informed me of this really cool tradition she has where she takes all of her animal ornaments and like with her friends, they debate where it's going to go on the Christmas tree, like a trophic tree of like consumers and producers and stuff. And, you know, every time she gets a new ornament, it changes, like, the dynamics of the tree and where all these animals fit on a scale of who eats who. And she told me about it this year, and now I just want to buy, like, a ton of animal ornaments and a tree, (laughs) and I want to get really nerdy and build a trophic tree. That is so cool. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Oh, man. Uh, Kevin or uh, Susan, how about you guys? Uh, Sure. Uh, One of the traditions my... uh, my wife, uh, she's also from like a kind of an Italian background. So one of the things everyone does is uh, every year they do a Feast of the Seven Fish. Sorry. I know as an Aquarian person, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. No problem. And what a transition. Uh, speaking of, but instead of seven fish, it's mostly seven or more things that are in the sea. Um, crab, anything without scale. Not really much stuff from like Leviticus. Um, so it's... Uh, and they just have to end on an odd number. So mostly it ends up being us trying out different recipes, different meals that everyone's, um, they kind of do a potluck with a few different families that are kind of related to them, but not really like kind of related through cousins. But, uh, my wife's side, they're kind of a smaller side of the family. So there aren't many first cousins. So kind of like second cousins and so on kind of became more of a nucleus of a family. So this is like the time of year. Everyone gets to sit back, enjoy and drink. Nice. Which who argues with that? <laughs> well, I feel like for Italian families, second cousins are pretty much first cousins too. I just, <laughs> I just saw like some yeah. second cousins out in uh, out in Pittsburgh this past weekend, and it was just got brunch with them, hung out, had a great conversation, and everything. So, yeah. <laughs> second cousins, the guy down the street who delivers your mail every now and again when it gets dropped off at your house, the Amazon packaging delivery guy. I'm pretty sure all. <laughs> at that point as long as there's an shared appreciation for food i feel like that is the key (laughs) so what about you susan 
Um, well, let's see. Uh, holiday traditions. Um, well, I like to do the following items, which is spend Christmas Eve with my family, and then, uh, which now includes two children instead of one. So that's a little bit of craziness. <laughs> but it's me and loss. Um, then after the kids go to bed, you know, we have sufficiently had our Santa Claus tradition. Um, I like to lean back and just sit there with a nice cold glass of eggnog and, well, turn on Die Hard. Because, yes. honestly, <laughs> not until you have watched Hans Gruber tell, basically, John McClane that he's going to kill him, and then you hear, yippee ki <laughs> and then on like Donkey Kong. Yes. Um, and then the next oh, day, I started watching, you know, Christmas Story for like 24 hours because God, how many times can the kid shoot his eye out? <laughs> and followed by copious amounts of eating at my own family's house. So yes, that's basically how I spend the holidays. Is there's food, John McClane, um, which I I will die on this anthill that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I feel like there's been a lot of growing support for that over the past few years. I feel like the internet really bolsters that. Because, like, everyone is just like, you know, I've always thought it's a Christmas movie. And then everyone's like, you know, I think it is, too. I feel like I've seen more, like, memes and posts about it in, like, the past two years than years before, too. It's, <laughs> it's happening at a Christmas party in the Nakamura building on Christmas Eve. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I hope it's not too much of a spoiler for our audience, but it's not really Christmas until I see Hans Gruber fall off the Nakatomi building. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God! If it's a spoiler for them at this point, they're our fault. That's a good point, Kevin. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then uh, I I know for me, um, I I really enjoy just uh, like lots of good food. Um, and uh, but more importantly, I got into sous vide cooking this year, and I did a test run a couple months ago of a like holiday chuck roast, and it's basically, I take a chuck roast, I season it with like salt, pepper, and rosemary, and then I do the sous vide cooking, which is like, I vacuum seal the meat, and then it puts it in this bin with water, and the machine circulates it and keeps it at like 145, and I cook it for three days, and then it's like all of that waiting and preparation, and then I bring it out, and there's all the juices, and then it's just like so delicious, the meat is just falling apart, and it's... So yeah, I'm I'm excited to institute a new tradition uh, for this year, <laughs> but still food related. <laughs> Three days is impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's a really patient meal. I didn't even like brine soaking my turkeys before Thanksgiving. I was so impatient. <laughs> Well, in other words, you wait three days to eat. You must be getting super thin. <laughs> oh oh no, God. there, there, there is plenty of other food. I had to, I had to like convince my mom to move one other like meal from the vast agenda of meals that we had uh, since we're going to be uh, spending Christmas with them. And I was like, look, I got this chuck roast. It's going to be good. She's like, all right, well, I'm going to have to move the lasagna to a different day. I was like, why not both? <laughs> Why not both? That is the best response. <laughs> we just have, we're just prepping a little snack, that's all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, all right. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and get into this. Um, and kind of before we start uh, on the episode discussion, I kind of wanted to talk about a couple uh, just uh, winter solstice uh, facts and traditions. Um, because uh, after researching it, I, one, found it very interesting, and two, 
there were some really cool connections that I think we'll be able to make with these episodes. Um, so, uh, of course, Winter Solstice, it marks the shortest day and longest night of the year. Um, it's basically the Earth tilts towards the sun again, so we get more sunlight. Thank goodness. I feel like these dark days are draining my soul. <laughs> um, and uh, in Latin, solstice is made of two words, sol meaning the sun, and sistir meaning to make stand. So the sun is making a stand. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, but yeah, and uh, across okay, the world... I just made the whole winter solstice thing way more diehard than any other diehard. <laughs> just like, like the oh, sun God. Is really up there on the Nakatu. Not going to be going like, Hans Gruber, I got you now. And Hans Gruber is like nighttime, like holding on with death grip, vicing on the side of the building. Like, I'm going to keep it dark after five o'clock for the rest of time. So are we just going to kind of parallel Avatar and Die Hard for the rest of the night? Is that what we're doing? We're going to figure out how to tie all these characters together? I don't think I can't. I feel like that was a challenge. Challenge accepted. <laughs> So uh, the winter solstice is celebrated all across the world in a variety of different cultures. Um, in uh, Germanic folklore, we have, of course, uh, the Krampus, uh, which it punishes bad children by whipping and snatching them. And uh, But in Austria, it's also uh, the Krampus is believed to ward off bad spirits near the solstice. Um, so one of the kind of overarching themes with all of these is that there is a deep sense of spirituality um, or some kind of connection with spirits or the spirit world. Um, and in Japan, uh, on a completely different note, people traditionally soak in hot baths with yuzu citrus fruit uh, to welcome the solstice and protect their bodies from the common cold. Um, I found really adorable pictures because they also uh, put them in the aquariums as well. And like a lot of the zoos, they like put in like the yuzu citrus fruit so that the animals can enjoy them too. <laughs> I mean, that sounds about right. I mean, this past Halloween, I lost track of how many exhibits had pumpkins in them. I mean, we just, for some odd reason, we just want our animals to celebrate with us. So very often, uh, exhibits will start to look very festive. And secretly, that's why Kristen randomly is finding pumpkins still, and it is almost Christmas. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and then in Korea, uh, good luck is associated with uh, a red bean porridge um, that they make around the winter solstice. Um, but not only do they eat it, but they also spread it around the house to keep evil spirits away. Um, I tried digging into more details as to how they spread it around, if they put lots of little tiny bowls or if they just slop it on there. But uh, but yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> that's something that is also a tradition based in the solstice. Um, and that sounds like a great segue into this episode. <laughs> yeah, I was like, say the soaking makes sense because isn't the first episode? Isn't that when Iroh's like in the bath and he gets caught? Yes, yes. So, uh, but one of one of the most yes, interesting you, ones. I'll uh, join in hot springs. <laughs> It'll do you some good. Winter <laughs> solstice. Um, but one of the most interesting ones I found was that um, at this, it's like a castle or kind of. Um, like uh, archaeological site called Newgrange in Ireland in Boyne Valley. Uh, this place is over 5,000 years old. It contains a 62-foot passage that leads into a chamber that is aligned with the sun as it rises during the solstice. And when the solstice happens around dawn, sunlight pierces through the top of the chamber 
and slowly illuminates the room for about 17 minutes. And then you can enter to see Avatar Roku. <laughs> right? <laughs> you are a master of okay. groundwork for this episode. <laughs> I'm totally waiting right now for every time he brings up something that I can drive it home. <laughs> and then the last one is, of course, uh, Stonehenge is a really, really big uh, site of solstice celebrations. Uh, revelers gather there to sing, play instruments, kiss the stones, and do yoga as they wait for the sun to rise. Um, Stonehenge is known for its precise alignment with the sun's movement and is believed to be potentially a sacred place of worship and celebration for solstices for thousands of years. Um, it's uh, And the solstice itself is just a time of year where um, a birth of a divine child and savior is a part of a lot of different beliefs, cultures, and religions. Uh, in ancient Egypt, the birth of Horos, uh, the birth of Mithras in Persia, the birth of Jesus at Christmas, and the birth of the spiritual son at Alban, Arthan of the Druids. So this is a very, again, spiritual time of year. There's a lot of significance. And if there's anything that we've really learned from uh, Mike and Brian as showrunners and what they've infused in Avatar is that they just love pulling in from so many different cultures. And they just did extensive research. They traveled uh, all over the world before creating the show and during to really not only get artistic inspiration, but also cultural inspiration. Um, so yeah, so that's just kind of some of the winter solstice uh, factoids and everything. But without further ado, let's get right into uh, the first episode of part one here, The Spirit World. Um, so this episode starts off, uh, I thought it was just so great to know, Aang's, like, just, it shows his carefree attitude of, like, you know, Katara's musing of like, wow, like this cloud looks like you could jump in it. And Aang's like, I'll do it. <laughs> and he just like jumps right into this cloud almost immediately, that happy-go-lucky attitude. But that is so completely turned on its head when they go to and land at the dead forest. And Aang is just like crestfallen at this. And I just, that that difference especially really stood out to me this time to kind of see, you know, him going from that carefree to like, wow, this sucks. Yeah. I think it's been mentioned a couple other times uh, as we're going back and revisiting this, like, yeah, it starts, you know, Aang happy go lucky. And then the show like just gut punches you right away. And it reminds you, it's like, yeah, this is animated, but this is not just like, you know, a jump in the clouds. This is like, this is real. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, for them anyway. This is important. This is big, and it leads into crazy things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's kind of funny because the audience kind of shares that with Aang because this whole world is new to us, and then Aang's been gone for like a hundred years. So while Katara and Sokka are used to devastating scenes, like we kind of feel with Aang, where it's just like, oh my god, what's going on? Like we have no idea. Aang has no idea. We kind of share in that and commiserate. Absolutely. He's such a like perfect narrative vehicle for the audience to see that through his eyes and experience that with him. Um, so what's great, too, is that that's a so excited to reunite with the world after so long, only to find out that the world has just basically moved on without him. And, you know, now he's stuck on Christmas Eve being alone and possibly divorced from all things that could, you know, be happiness for him. Just saying. Yeah. It's so true. 
Um, and what's really interesting is that this episode is such a great, uh, these two actually are such a huge turning point in terms of raising the stakes. And we'll kind of talk about this uh, throughout the discussion and everything. But um, one of the things that Aang realizes from the beginning here is that, it, you know, they go into this town and they're like, like, Avatar, we need your help. There's a spirit monster attacking us. Like, you should be able to help. You're the bridge between worlds. You should, like, this is your jam. And Aang is like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I don't have a teacher to teach me. And we know that he's on a quest to, you know, learn water bending and wants to get to the North Pole. But at the same time, it's like he has no one to teach him this Avatar stuff. And I thought it was just such a great way to set up into this two episode arc as well. Um, I, I don't know what what was it like for you guys like revisiting like Haybai coming in and that whole scene of like him coming into the village and Ang trying to convince him and uh, him taking Sako. Can I nitpick? Sure. I I the 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 naturalist in me nitpicked a little bit because we all know how Haybai is presented as a panda. Mm-hmm. When I looked at the episode again and looked at the totem. That's a that's a brown bear. That is, I mean, not just that it's brown. It's literally physically shaped like a brown bear and not a panda bear. Hmm. That is, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything really. At the end of the day, like I understand it. Like, unless you have a naturalist on your <laughs> animation team, nobody cares. It looks like a bear. Hey, hey, is a bear. Connection made. Yeah, true. <laughs> For me, I was like. <laughs> well, I feel like so much of that reveal too comes in with like uh, Ang realizing that he's kind of a panda bear, and it like really like comes out of <laughs> only in that they're vegetarians. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, but yeah, what about for the rest of you guys for like that scene kind of uh, revisiting that? It's kind of interesting. Like when I you think about the you know we can't. I'm trying not to think about the rest of the arc of the show. But I, I agree with what we were saying before. It's kind of uh, a cool transition to watch, like, and kind of ha- having fun, going out, exploring the world, into all of a sudden having to be the Avatar. Mm. He doesn't know how to do it, but he has to do it. Um, pretty great coincidence that he happened to just walk into some dude looking for the Avatar. Um, when, it was, when I thought about that later, I'm like, oh, it's kind of funny they ran into each other. What a <laughs> what great timing. Um, <laughs> but it's... Uh, but all of a sudden, kind of getting into the action. I mean, this in mean, the the whole two part episode. I mean, you know, there's a lot of you, know, you get your fill of fight scenes, you get your fill of plot building, um, seeing how just mean and terrible Zhao is. Um, it's it's really great. While having gone through this again, it's kind of crazy that they did this. What the seventh and eighth episode? Mm-hmm. Like they got to business, and after this, I was looking at the rest of the episodes that come up, and this really sets the the trend for the rest of the season minus great divide of course <laughs> um and we're i mean we were talking earlier was that kevin i don't i don't i don't think that's even an avatar episode we just don't even talk about that. there is no great divide episode in avatar <laughs> they flew over it remember they flew over it okay that's what happened so uh of course uh, you know what's great about two and book one and throughout like the series as well is that when we shift from ang and the gang to uh zuko uh and iroh's adventures and of course we open up with iroh in the hot springs 
just enough said it is just that is quintessential iroh relaxing prioritizing relaxation before anything else (laughs) (laughs) agree i have to say this episode reminded me of how much i love that that (laughs) yeah i feel like these series of episode definitely helps make uh bigger fan favorites of iroh and zuko oh absolutely um you know, and it, it definitely, it kind of, like, it, it also gives us more of their, like, relationship and everything. And we'll, we'll kind of get into that as the episode uh, kind of progresses. But, you know, th- this whole episode, not just for Zuko and Iroh, really does reinforce so much of the great kind of character tropes for everyone. You know, we have Aang and his perspective of the world getting used to all of this. And then we have Katara with her ruthless optimism of being like, you're going to do great, Aang. They'll come back. Sokka will get back from the spirit world. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Oh, that was her smile when she's like, where's Sokka? And you're just like, oh. Yeah. (laughs) And then, of course, Sokka's sarcastic attitude. It's one of my favorite uh, comedic bits from that first first episode. Where it's just like, I believe in you, Aang. And then it just pans over to Sokka. And he's just like. Yeah, we're all going to get eaten by a giant spirit monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, everyone in this episode kind of had that you know, big identifying feature put in the spotlight. I mean, to be fair, I don't blame him. You were talking about an inexperienced, essentially 11-year-old child who doesn't know his role and has no mentor. Sokka is more of a realist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I thought was really interesting, too, and something I picked up on this time was that... When they go to that village, the villagers are like, oh, so the rumors are true. The Avatar has returned. So what's really cool is that, you know, we're living, they're living in a time where, of course, they don't have rapid and mass communication. So, and they're also in the middle of a war. So communication is already somewhat difficult and inconsistent at best. And that, that word of the Avatar's return is, it's spreading throughout the world now. And the impact that that's having and how that like positive momentum and the hope that that's instilling in people, it kind of builds towards a lot of these, you know, folks who are, you know, making a stand and deciding to, you know, actually find kind of their courage again and not be so downtrodden in the face of the Fire Nation and like the war that they're waging. Have you heard there's a rumor in the Earth Kingdom? (laughs) That they're saying on the street. Although the Avatar may have survived, he may be also still alive. Do, 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 do. How long have you been working on this, Susan? <laughs> Here, I thought we were going to make parallels with German terrorists. Now we're doing a Russian musical. I'm so confused. <laughs> well, obviously, you know, everyone was pretty confident that all of a sudden there's this one guy out there who's basically going to, you know, beat the terrorist and. And, you know, they're all, he, he's like, I'm going to take down the spirit bear. Meanwhile, there's that, always that one guy in the corner is like, okay, look, I'm going to be willing to deal with you. And then he gets shot. And that's what happens. <laughs> Sokka gets basically taken off to be eaten by a spirit bear because he wanted to deal with it. Okay. All right. Let's be mark parallel. that for, for point one for uh, par- diehard parallels. <laughs> oh, that was my second parallel. You, you already missed the first one. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but what what I love, too, about this episode is that this is also the kind of first introduction that we get of um, Iroh being referred to as the Dragon of the West 
and the fact that he was this great general in the past. Um, because when the Earthbenders kind of ambush him at the hot springs, he's like, this is no, you know, just no ordinary firebender. This is General Iroh. You know, it's like suddenly what we have seen from this character as, you know, he's happy-go-lucky. We know that he, you know, is obviously Zuko's uncle. But, like, now we're getting more depth. And throughout this episode, we really kind of see the latent power and awesomeness that is Iroh really kind of come to fruition. It's so awesome. <laughs> and he, he really contrasts the way Aang does, because like we just said with the opener, you know, Aang starts out happy-go-lucky, and then it very quickly turns dark. You know, before Iroh gets kidnapped, he's literally talking to a vole, a small <laughs> rodent, peacefully in a hot tub. You know, and most of what we've seen of him is like that. He's calm, he's collected, um... You know, the only time we've seen any kind of aggression is when um, uh, Zhao threatened Zuko after the Agnikai. Like, that's the only real peak at any true aggression we've seen from him or impatience with people. You know, this is the first time we get an idea that, you know, this hasn't been Iroh all the time, that he obviously has something he's hiding and he's not just a, as Azula would say, fuddy-duddy uncle. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Well, yeah. not just some cop from the city that literally just shows up in the middle of the West. I mean, he actually, you know, he's got some group to him. Unfortunately, he's without shoes right now. <laughs> but all you have to do is snort some <laughs> cuffs and just burst some oh, soldiers geez. who are trying to take him hostage. And I'm just saying, yippee-ki-yay, <laughs> firebenders. Are, are, are we making parallels between Reginald Vol Johnson and Uncle Iroh? <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Kaye firebender. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, uh one of the things I I want to get again into is uh talk a little bit about um Heibai uh itself and you know, especially going back and looking at the design and the not only the design but like how just thoroughly Heibai wrecks that village and how intimidating of a presence that is compared to Everything that we've really seen, like we obviously we saw the um, at Kyoshi Island, we saw the Unagi, which is a giant like sea serpent that like, okay, this is this thing is huge. It's natural. But like there is something so otherworldly about Heibai with all of its limbs and appendages and coloring scheme and just like firing lasers out of its mouth. (laughs) It's like it's just it's so jarring. But I don't know. What was it like for you guys to like? see that again in any new insights uh, revisiting that scene with Hei Well, I think Hei is a pretty straightforward metaphor for the most part. I mean, and yin and yang is often dropped throughout the series. We see it when we go to the water tribe, but I mean, you know, black and white yin and yang is, is a, is a pretty common um, uh, form of symbolism in a lot of cultures. And Hei has those two sides because we mostly just see the, the chaotic monster responding to, uh, a lack of balance because when the fire nation destroys the forest, it was protecting, you know, it, it, it sees that. And we see the, the dark side of Hey spirit, which is an extreme to the very passive Panda that we see later on, mm. both at the end of the episode and later on in the series, which is much more calm and collected and, 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 you know, is, is calmed by the idea that balance will return. So, I mean, I think it's a, a 
pretty straightforward, like kind of yin and yang thing going on with Haibai um, and, and talking about the balance and lack of balance in the world. I think Haibai yeah. is everybody this tortured. time of year. I think I think uh, Hey Bye just is everybody this time of year. You know, you got to go to your in-laws' house, and it's just chaos, and your whole life gets turned upside down. And you're asked every five minutes when you're going to really grow up and find a real job, and <laughs> and just it's it's literally just driving you nuts. That yeah, I think I'd tack a town too if I was Hey Bye at this point. I mean, you know, have the whole thing burnt. Um, you know, it might it might take an avatar to make me calm down and be like, okay, yeah. After the holidays, things are going to be normal again. I'm going to get a normal sleep schedule, and I can just tell everyone to go kick rocks. Ah. <laughs> yeah, hey, guys, like that is why winter solstice. That's why this happens during winter solstice. I'm pretty confident it's supposed to be a meta. Hey, guys, supposed to be a metaphor for the holidays. <laughs> oh man! Hashtag hey, bye holiday. <laughs> Um, so, I, I, Kevin, I want to go to you not only for these, uh, for your thoughts on Hey Bye, but also just to get your overall thoughts on these two episodes, just so we can have them for the episode, because I know uh, Kevin's got to go. He is has some curling to attend to. Hurry hard. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, so the quick things I wanted to get in on this was, one was going back to Iroh, I mean, obviously just the greatest character and uh, forum handle that you can have. Um, he... What got me in this was how calculating he is. And we see it later. That's how you kind of know he was as experienced and great a general as he is. He had very, he was in shackles. And by the end of it, they were scared of him. So scared that they were going to crush his hands. I, and he found ways to manipulate the few people around him. They're supposed to be expert benders, soldiers of the Fire Nation. And he almost made them look like fools, in not only in shackles, but with his chains, in a loincloth. Mm. Um that's what got me. I and mean, we see that again later, you know, much, much later in the show um, when he's in prison again, again in shackles. And you can see he he knows what he's doing and no one else does. Like he's thinking, you know, eighth dimensional chess when everyone else is playing tic-tac-toe. Mm. Um, so that was my impression of him. Overall, I think what really got me and we I'm sure you guys will get to this later in the uh, the episode, the music, mm. the when Roku comes out and you hear that music, I, I still get goosebumps. Um, and it comes back a few different times in the series. But like when he comes out as Roku, I mean, they were in awe, uh, you know, Katara and uh, Sokka. And I was, too. It was one of those when he came out, you realize, yeah, yeah, he's a kid. Yeah, he has, you know, he still needs some help, needs some figuring out. But he has the power and he's going to need to harness it to get where he needs to go. Mm. Well said. That was awesome. <laughs> well, cool. thank you for having me, guys. Um, not to plug another podcast, but for any fans of the history of Rome, happy Saturnalia. Nice. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Kevin. Thanks, Colin. I love this getting to do this again. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're, uh, you know, kind of uh, moving on from like uh, through the discussion of Hey Bye. Um, I, I want to get into, uh, you know, with Iroh, um, again, uh, we see, we get to hear more of Iroh's background with this. Um, they mention, uh, Iroh's siege of Bossing Say, um, because he's like, where are you taking me? It's like a city you're very well familiar with. It's, 
Uh, and what I what I really found interesting about revisiting this episode was that there's something so telling about how much Iroh is keeping buried and hidden. Because when they ask him, he says, my men were tired, I was tired. And clearly we know the reason why he stepped away was because he lost his son. But no one else really knows that. And it kind of, you know, what's the narrative that was kind of given to the Fire Nation and what the Earth Kingdom must have thought and like, you know, what what kind of went into it. But I don't know. Did, did that stick out to you guys or anything else from uh, Iroh's uh, capture that stood out? I mean, I definitely thought it was really cool because by the end of it, you know, and, and, and Kevin really covered a lot of this, so I'm not going to iterate a whole lot of it, but it is really interesting how the scene begins. You know, he wakes up from a nap. He's quickly captured by luck by these soldiers. Um, and we hear a little bit of that background and we learn that he he he's, he wasn't a general for nothing. It's not like, oh, he was a prince. He was the king to be. So automatic general title. Like, it does seem like there was a definite earning of some title for him. Um, you know, whether he inherited it and then just filled the, t- the role very well or if he earned it. You know, it, it's obvious that people feared him. And um, by the end of it, like Kevin said, you know, it was really impressive how in just a loincloth and some broken shackles, you know, he manages to take these guys on. And even though Zuko does pop up at the end, kind of feel like Iroh probably would have been okay. But that's some bias because, of course, I've seen the whole series. But, <laughs> you know, it's 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 impressive. And, you, and it makes you start to wonder, like, you know, you start asking questions about a character that you weren't necessarily questioning that much before. We do wonder about Zuko and the mysterious scarring and banishment. Cause that's really been alluded to, but not really fully fleshed out. But Iroh wasn't really a character that you felt strongly inclined to question his background that much. Mm. Um, Cause at this point we don't even know his sons died. We don't really know much other than the fact that he's an uncle. Um, and that, uh, he wasn't very scared of Zhao, which I will admit, even, even watching that again, it was like, whoa, Mm. okay, different, maybe just one off, but this one definitely creates like incentive to question and wonder like, who is this guy? Yeah, that's a really good point, especially just, and it's the strength of the show is its characters and the fact that they take these characters that in other shows would be very one-dimensional they're serving the purpose Iroh's the mentor figure and maybe they'll kind of throw in some background you know later in a in a series where it's just like oh we have these dramatic flashbacks or whatever but Avatar really builds the backgrounds of its characters very gradually and has these incredible payoffs from all of these kind of hinted backstories and little details that they sprinkle in and I just love that we're starting to get that with Iroh here. I want to dive into that fight because I just want to keep this on Iroh with everything. So with that fight, I'm so glad that Kevin brought that up because, I mean, that is such... One, it's such an incredibly badass fight. But also, that is actually, I think, one of the first times that we do get to see Earthbending. Because I remember we discussed... Besides, like, with King Boomy, like, this is not just like royal royalty earthbending. This is like your commonplace soldiers. And we've seen the commonplace soldier firebenders. But now we're seeing like, okay, these are soldiers in the war. This is what they're capable of. And 
kind of getting to see them in a fight versus firebenders for the first time. But I don't know. What what did you, any other thoughts about kind of that fight and um, with Zuko coming in and Iroh doing some crazy chain work? Oh my God, that was insane. (laughs) Fire chains. Fire (laughs) chains. Now he has a weapon. He's got some fire chains. He's on Whoa, whoa, whoa. Iroh's body is a weapon. Yes. No, no, no. Iroh's body is like, a, is like a massive Sherman tank coming through to take down your village. Okay. <laughs> like a weapon is just the fire chains. Now he has a weapon. Ha ha. Merry Christmas. That's what he basically told them. Okay. I mean, like it's the equivalent of the John McCain shotgun. Basically You're giving him the man was literally rolling around with no shoes on. He's got fire chains. And he's the Sherman. I know tank. he dropped his sandal. <laughs> yeah, that was no, so great. John did find sandals eventually. <laughs> and Zuko hangs on to that all the way until the finale. <laughs> I know, but it's obviously stinky too. Like he even smells it and he's like, oh, that's him. Like, <laughs> there's a whole thing about it. And it's like, oh God. He can't help that he he can't help that he only has one pair of sandals. They've been wandering around for at least nine months at this point. You know, the poor man. You gotta admit, it, like he, he, yeah, sure, they've got some some money somewhere, but well, you know, no, he he okay. was ready to buy that ruby-eyed monkey. He could buy himself a new pair of sandals. Yeah, I think he's just very attached to these uh, sandals because they 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 pull a lot of loot from that pirate they ship. Were, they were a solstice gift from his departed son, possibly. Okay, oh, oh. <laughs> just say. Parents um, will literally hold on to weird stuff like that. Like, <laughs> I'm not joking. I've got a macaroni art that's like hanging out in my in my office right now that I'm pretty confident I've had for four years and that my kid made. But oh. you no, know, I'm not going to get rid of it anytime soon because she made that for me. Damn it! If she asks where it is, then I got to be able to produce that sucker. <laughs> so, oh, I just thought you were keeping it as like zombie apocalypse rations or something. But okay, <laughs> um. As far oh, as no. no 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 the, the zombie apocalypse rations, I've already got a few of those things going on, and I might I may or may not be calling an Uncle Iroh for help with that. <laughs> but as far as the uh, contrast and style goes, I think that the the fight scene really helps bring out the difference in styles because you can see the uh, when the Earthbenders uh, uh, call forth a boulder, you see them get down into a very squared. Um, position it's a lot of like striking the ground with their feet fists like hard jabs and stuff like that and when Zuko shows up you know it's he comes in and his little like ninja kick when he splits the shackles like it's this nice graceful arcing kick like you know when I when I visualize um it's kind of like the, the the nation symbols because a lot of earth nation symbols have some form of square to it or something with edges versus the fire nation which is fire it's curvy it's it's graceful you know i really do feel like the 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 styles are really well represented in their symbols as well and you can see that in like the brutish uh form of earth bending that we see versus the much more clean and cut and graceful uh fire bending we get from iroh and and zuko it does really help kind of bring to light the differences in not just the styles of bending but like the actual martial arts behind them as well yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I love, too, um, one of the things I actually wrote down while I was taking notes was that we finally got to see, uh, you know, we see the the Earthbenders with these hats, like, and 
you're like, okay, that's a cool design. You have your character design and everything. But then we find out why those hats are designed the way they are when Zuko fires out a fire blast and that dude like bends down and takes the blast completely on the helmet as it dissipates. So these helmets were made out of like basically a reaction to firebending because they have a way of like dispersing the flames and keeping them safe from direct attacks. And I just thought that was such a cool way to, you know, take character design and give it that kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like the utilization and like having a reason for it. What's that? You're looking for the word pizzazz, right? That's what you're looking for. Flair. Flair. Armor. Well, I, (laughs) well, I do feel like it's also out of necessity though. Let's, Let's be fair. This is fashionable, but necessary. Um, because, I mean, that's what's really cool about it is they would design something to help them against firebenders considering the war. So mm-hmm. it, it makes sense that you would see pieces of their lives, whether it's simple lives or soldier lives, that would be in reaction to the Fire Nation and their campaign to take over the Earth Kingdom. So, I mean, it, it, it makes complete sense that there would be pieces of themselves that would be dedicated to either protection or or aggression towards um, firebenders, so it's a uh, it's interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought of that, but you know, as soon as you said it, that scene popped into my head. I was like, oh yeah, that's a, that just that just makes complete sense. <laughs> I didn't even bat an eye at it because in my head, it makes sense that they would build a way to shield themselves as much as possible from firebending. Yeah, um, it, but I, actually, I want to kind of uh, backtrack just a little bit just before that fight scene starts, because, again, getting into these character moments, um, something that was it was very short, but it was such a great moment. And it kind of again, it gets back to that idea of like the gradual character growth. When Zuko is tracking Iroh, he sees Appa flying through the air and he's like the Avatar, but he looks back and sees the ostrich horse tracks and he has to make a decision does he chase after the avatar or does he go and save his uncle and it gives us a little insight into what his priorities are that even though he gets frustrated with his uncle and he you know clearly you know it's kind of just like oh come on just teach me firebending just you know all of that there is he does care about him and we're starting to slowly establish kind of Zuko's core values as that is, as the show is progressing. I just thought such a, it was such a short little moment, but it adds to a whole mountain of character growth that uh, leads to Zuko's uh, whole arc. Well, and I'm not even sure if Zuko realizes it to some degree either, because you do see some forms of ungratefulness throughout the series, Mm. especially towards the end when Azula is trying to convince him to come back. But um, in this particular instance, like, we don't know much, but later on we do begin to realize that Iroh is really the only person in his life after his mother who took his side, who protects him, who, you know, does anything for him, really. You know, he's, be- he's been betrayed by his father, his sister. Um, it, it, Zhao treats him awful. Like, I mean, there's... he. We see, as the series goes on, with his heavy handedness that he has sometimes that even, even his crew has doubts about him. So like really Iroh is all he has. 
So even if he failed to bring the Avatar to his father, he would still have Iroh. If he brings the Avatar to his father, he still has Iroh. But if he loses Iroh and fails to get the Avatar, he has nothing, mm. literally nothing. So in some ways, it, it makes sense. I'm not sure if he recognizes that necessarily. He Maybe he does, but his actions don't suggest that he necessarily realizes how much he needs Iroh in his life. I do think it's somewhat instinctual as much as it is that he cares about Iroh, that there's a part of him that might realize that 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 literally is all he has, despite his hope that his father will accept him if he brings home the Avatar. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it partly gets alluding, it, it leads up to why later in the series, and spo- uh, spoiler for those who have not seen the series and are listening to this podcast, in which case I have to ask, um, go finish the series and then come back. <laughs> as much as I love having people listen to us. Um, you know, it, it gets to the point really in later in the series when, you know, you're at, he's at the beach and he doesn't know why he's angry. He's just angry, even though he has everything he always wanted. And, it's because literally he has the one thing he's always had that he didn't realize gave him the unconditional support, love, and care that he desperately, that's all he needed to live. Like he didn't, those were things he wanted. And he always thought the things, when you had the things you wanted, you would be happy, but it was always the thing that you had that you loved the most. And now it's gone. Like I could, you know, that's where it gets to later. And I think it's a great build up to that later understanding of that. You know, Ira really is his world. Yeah. Like without Ira, it's it's you know it's just him and he's alone because you know the things he has once Ira is gone and like once he comes back to the Fire Nation and everything, it's all superficial for the most part. I mean, he got them because people believe he did something it's not because he's suko he's this guy who you know sucks at firebending sometimes and is hot-headed irrational stubborn um you know i really feel like if i say anything me- more mean about suko i feel like i'm gonna get a message from <laughs> from the character himself asking me to stop i'm too much oh man well let's face it we had a lot of people in avatar portal who were like zuko fangirls like literally it was in their names so for those that might be <laughs> listening to the podcast maybe we want to you know hold on let me let me keep going then oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's okay in, in uh, one of our last episodes uh kristen uh she said she was a self-proclaimed katara hater so you know there it's it's all good you know we we all have uh we all have our character beefs <laughs> Well, and it, it tells us how strongly they wrote the characters, too, because mm-hmm. you can't hate a character if they're not written really well. Yeah. Well, you can hate a character for being written poorly. That's not really the character you hate, though. That's the writer. But in this case, I hate Katara because she is so well done, and I don't like her personality. <laughs> I don't necessarily hate the character. I mean, I actually kind of love the character because it's so realistic of the challenges and the, you know, just the basic... In- the basic way that teenagers are literally the I'm invincible. Oh, I'm always so sad, though. Oh, <laughs> let me go right to my emo post wall now. Like, it literally oh, is God crazy. forbid Zuko ever had a Facebook <laughs> so, or Twitter. It would be so dark. <laughs> Can oh. we just 
Hashtag somebody get a Zuko Twitter going. For I, us. I have a feeling that there's probably one out there. So if you are a listener Dante and you have a Bosco, Zuko Twitter, I have not done this for us yet. I'm <laughs> Dante, at Dante Bosco, why have you not created a random Zuko Twitter for all of us? <laughs> Just emo rant you know, periodically. Yes. Get yes. on Fire Nation. Get on this. Hashtag where's my honor? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Hashtag so. Hashtag Hey guys, just wanted to thank you again for listening to The Legend of Portal Cast and our Winter Solstice episode. Um, this was so much fun to record, and uh, we hope you are enjoying it so far. Um, we are just incredibly grateful for all of the support that you guys have given us over this year, uh, sticking with us through the hiatus uh, during the summer. We're just so excited moving into 2019 to discuss all kinds of Avatar content. Um, next episode, uh, we're really excited. We're going to be talking about um, the first graphic novel in the Avatar The Last Airbender graphic novel series, The Promise. Um, we are going to go through all of the graphic novels, including the uh, most recent one, um, Imbalance. Um, it's a fantastic story, and uh, just in whole, we're excited to be covering all of the Avatar content that uh, has come out to date and everything that's going to be coming out throughout this year. We have a really, really exciting lineup of comics and a novel, and of course, the upcoming live series. So again, uh, any way you can reach out to us uh, through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, email, and uh, like I said in our previous episode, we're going to be launching our official YouTube channel. We'll be posting all of the podcasts there, as well as some video content that we're going to be recording and publishing uh, later on this year. So uh, thanks so much again, and uh, we're really excited for 2019. Hope you are too. Thanks, guys. So I uh, to we're gonna shift gears and uh, get into back into the story with um, Aang and uh, Katara and Sokka and kind of how this episode concludes. Um, obviously, this is the first time Aang is in the spirit world uh, in a kind of spirit world form. Uh, this is also a great opportunity because now the creators get to establish the rules of the spirit world. Uh, you can't bend in the spirit world. People can't see you if you are in there, um, and it just it kind of has like a see-through feel to you and everything. Um, and of course, this is a lot of it is because of the winter solstice as well. Um, and Aang gets these visions from Fang, uh, Avatar Roku's uh, dragon companion, about uh, it. Just these at first, we get these flashes of just this like flaming meteor, and we're like, okay, and. Then, as they go over to, uh, as the Fang takes him to the temple, he sees this vision again, and he knows what he has to do. And when he returns, you know, he goes through kind of this experience. He has a spiritual experience for the first time, and the fact that he's able to apply that and speak to Hebei in a way, and put his hand on his head and be able to take out the acorn and say, look, there is hope. And 
what's so beautiful about that moment, and I, I know it can be criticized as like, here's the magic plot solving acorn. I know in one of Gangzimba's <laughs> old videos, he uses that. But what's so great about that moment is that he, Aang is applying a lesson from Katara that she gave him in the beginning, but also he's taking that kind of spiritual experience that he just had with Fang and applying those two together. And that is that bridge moment. That is this like beginning of Aang's journey as a fully realized avatar and as a bridge to the spirit world. And he chills out Heibai. Heibai goes back, sprouts some bamboo, and then all the people return. And Sokka, of course, says that wonderful joke where he realizes he needs to go to the bathroom, which what a callback that is later in book three. <laughs> Are there bathrooms in the spirit world? As a matter of fact, there are not. <laughs> um, well, as much as we want to read into how full circle that was, to be fair, considering a panda's diet, Aang might have just actually handed it a treat and placated it. As a <laughs> trainer, that's how I view it. <laughs> is that he gave it a treat. And it's like, and oh, hey. What you don't know is that they left that village the next night. Hibai came back and everybody died. The end. <laughs> Two completely direction, two completely different directions of that. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, and of course, that leads them directly into part two. Uh, now that the village has been saved um, and Aang knows what he needs to do, the part two starts off with a bang and it wastes no time. And I love that immediately, even like the head of the village is like, <laughs> hangs in the middle of like thanking him. And he's like, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, and, and then we really get to see the action chops of the animators and the story writers. I just love this uh, scene of running the blockade. It is such an amazing action like sequence. And can we give Appa a shout out? Because oh, Appa yes. in this particular episode is amazing. In the very beginning, he reads Aang's intent and says, no, let's face it, hashtag spirit animal. Yes. Gotta love Appa. And then, I mean, doesn't even bat an eye. Like, as Aang is literally being attacked and fending off all this stuff, like, Appa really just takes everything in stride so well. He is really an impressive animal. Like, if you've ever met a real-life bison, that's not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> he is an impressive animal. Well, I think it's just, it really is, it's it's that connection that they have and Appa understanding the urgency that they need to get to this place. There isn't much time and that there is a spiritual significance to that. And I think that it's it's no coincidence that it was Fang, Avatar Roku's animal companion, that brought him there. And I think that Appa being Aang's animal companion has to bring him there too. And I just love kind of how that goes out and just this going through and Sokka falling through the air and they're saving him and Zhao, like the reveal of the blockade for the first time is so great because they're like, oh man, we're, we're running from Zuko's ship and like dodging that fireball. And then it's like, Oh, you want fireballs? We got a whole blockade of fireballs. <laughs> and it's 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 crazy too because you know we had I mean we've had some some conflict with the Fire Nation at this point, but of course you know this is the first time they're going into Fire Nation territory, and this is the first time they've they've been met with guns this big. Like they've dealt with Zuko and like some fireballs here and there, but these aren't just like random fireballs. These are actually you know, set on fire 
actual material like this is really dangerous if this hits it's not just a little bit of fire it's actually got weight behind it mm. um so i mean it's a really serious threat and i'm not gonna lie i well i didn't do it this time around because obviously i knew it was gonna happen i do remember like clutching my pillow during the scene like oh my god these tiny children on a giant wild bison <laughs> are trying to fly past these these warships that are catapulting flaming cannonballs at them who thought this was a good idea? <laughs> it, is your house on fire, Clark? <laughs> it's, no, it's intense. No, those are just that's just a Fire Nation blockade, Bethany. <laughs> just a Fire Nation blockade. Well, and 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 we get to we get to see more of Zuko versus Zhao in this too, mm-hmm. which is always a fun dynamic to get to witness because. You know, Zuko's like run the blockade, knowing full well that he's not allowed to, and he makes an excuse. But we all know it's a pretty pitiful excuse based on Iroh's reaction to Zuko wanting to run the blockade and go back to the Fire Nation, uh, despite his banishment. Mm. And I think we all paused for a moment with Zuko as Zhao led him through, and we're all like, we're like Iroh, like stroking our beards, like, hmm, <laughs> this yeah. does not bode well. <laughs> it's it's also a very rare moment of patience for Zhao, too, um, because, you know, it's, you know, we see how reckless he can be in the deserter uh, later on. But this is something where he understands that, you know, he sees the situation for what, is it, what it is, knows that he can kind of get where he needs to get to without, you know, uh, you know, but he's still maintaining to killing two birds with one stone. No, there's, 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 so this is where I have to disagree with you is that it's not patience so much as strategic initiative there. Mm. Um, I mean, you can be the most strategic individual in the world, but have zero tolerance or ability to be patient in the moment. Um, I mean, I've seen it before where people are great strategic leaders where they literally sit there and plan out things but when things don't go according to plan they have no no concept or ability to just modify it on the fly and mm. the hits as they come which is what Zhao's downfall always is is that he has no flexibility and that's one thing that Iroh actually makes you know makes a comment about is that his inability to be flexible to be you know able to be bent his spirit to be bent or anything like that is is partially why Zhao's downfall comes in the way it does is that he just can't see beyond himself. And when things don't go according to plan, he makes rash decisions without considering the consequences. Um, it, it, you know, it's partly why he loses that, uh, that fight with Zuko originally. Mm. Um, you know, he underestimates the opponent and he thinks that he's, thought of every angle but when it didn't go to according to plan he got hot-headed angry and that's what causes you to lose sight and focus Mm. yeah yeah. i I agree he's certainly cunning when he believes he knows the outcome when he when he feels confident in what he's going to get and really shows that impatience and hot-headedness when either he feels he's not in control or when his plan fails so yeah he's 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 certainly one of those people that you know that patience only seems to arise when he's confident of his prize like Mm. when he knows he's about to get what he wants like he's like oh i've already won so i don't really have to do anything but then once he realizes that things aren't going his way then we really see that hot-headed like temper of his 
And it's it's one of those things where it's like it kind of makes sense because you almost feel like how did somebody like this get so far in his military career if he can't control himself? He has to be able to control himself to some degree. And if he's used to always winning, it makes sense that he would come off as this calm, collected and cunning leader. But as he starts to experience more and more failures in his career, especially when it comes to as big a prize as the Avatar, um, I do think that his his control does. I, that's probably why he really starts to slip is he's he keeps seeing these what he would think of as monumental failures and not being able to outwit Zuko and capture the Avatar. And um, it probably slowly cracks away at that confident exterior that we see. Yeah, those are all excellent points. I definitely would have to agree. Um, so, you know, they run the blockade and uh, they get through to the temple and uh, we get to see the fire sages. Um, and I love that. Uh, and, oh, sorry. One, because I, I meant to say this earlier. So just one last note on that blockade. It's another wonderful little spice of world building that Mike and Brian throw in there too because yes they're in the middle of a war there's a blockade that is that that is what happens when you have an island nation and they are controlling the seas and have a superior navy that was a massive blockade they're they're not letting anyone get to the homeland because no one can get there because of the blockade and it it just I love that that kind of adds to that overall world building um flavor of everything um but get, getting into the the fire sages here um it's really interesting because it's a nice little misdirect that they go in there and they're like yes we uh we served avatar roku and ang's like well i'm the avatar they're like we know and then they attack him and it's like oh man even these people who are supposed to support the avatar don't actually support the avatar this is how extensive the Fire Nation has turned everyone against the cause of the Avatar uh, for their own gain. Except for that one little one little Fire Sage who all he wanted to do was save the save the Avatar. Yes, she or Shayu was his name. Um, and yeah, it was really cool. The, it, the only the only thing I didn't like about that, like the going back and revisiting that scene, is that like when he like brings them away and is leading them through like those like magma tunnels, is that they're all walking so casually, and it's just like we were all just like dashing in and like running with like such urgency, and now it's just like <laughs> we're just like trotting along, like very very calmly walking through these caverns. I know you got to be careful, but like. Come on, guys. We have some urgency that we got to take on. <laughs> uh, excuse me. I, I thought this trip to Grandma's house was supposed to be pretty relaxing. I I, I don't see anything here. I, Grandma's oh, oh, oh. maybe in a volcano and all, but seriously. Yeah, I was going to say, the floor is literally lava this time, guys. We do need to be careful. <laughs> I mean, I'm just I'm just saying is that, you know, when, we to- when you told me you were going to Grandpa's house... Get some relaxing and you know by the lava pool. We literally just had this discussion of how stressful visiting family can be during the holidays. <laughs> if we're gonna talk about yeah. metaphors for the holidays and visiting this temple of you know sages, you go and visit those in-laws that you think might actually like you or those distant relatives, only to have them basically try to tear you down limb from limb, literally. <laughs> 
Literally. Or, you know, they're like these German terrorists that just take over this building that is... <laughs> this isn't what anybody expected. It's like, hey, we were just coming here for the holiday party. And here's these guys who have, like, ransacked the Oh, my word was Enog. Oh, my gosh. But I do appreciate the fact that I, I, I almost wish I knew... I understand how some of the doors work, but it is kind of fascinating to see them using firebending to open things. Mm. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like I look at that and I wonder how their tech works because I do imagine – I don't know if it's – I'm assuming it's pressurized to some degree because the heat would change the pressure. But if it's always hot in a volcano, does it really change the pressure that much? So it's one of those things where it's like it's a cool concept and at the same time I would really love for them to like publish schematics of like (laughs) – how some of these doorways works because I mean, literally, Shayu just opens a door by just going poop and throwing a little fire in it, and boom, a, a, a rock wall opens. A rock is not easy to move, so it's it's one of those things where it's like I'm I'm really curious. I, I know it might have just been put in there for the convenience and fun of it, but at the same time, like I'm sure somebody on this planet can devise a way that fire would be able to open a wall, and I kind of want it. <laughs> All right. Uh. So, NASA engineer that made the glitter bomb. Oh my God! Uh, I yes. I think what I'm hearing here is that we need you to basically. Are you talking about the guy who made the trap to put on his porch for people? Yes. Oh yes. my God! Amazing. I'm asking. I'm asking that engineer to really help us figure out how you would engineer a fire door. Yes. Um, I want this trending on Twitter. Hashtag fire door. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hashtag Gibikaye Firebender right behind it. Uh, <laughs> you can get that to trend. I would be super excited just because uh, one, I, I want to know how to build a fire door, and number two, um, is that something I can di- DIY on like the weekend? That's <laughs> that I can learn from a YouTube video because oh I'm scrolling down for going to Home Depot and have like I will literally go to Home Depot and be like. All right, what's our weekend warrior project? Let's go. A recent uh, uptick in house fires now following the trend of fire doors <laughs> sweeping the nation. Oh, man. Better than Tide Pods. Better than Tide Pods. <laughs> firebender. We are concerned. They were warned. They were warned. Out there. Yeah. Speaking of ingenuity, though. Yes. No, Anthony. It's just us building a fire door. <laughs> So yeah, uh, it's a nice little segue, yes, into uh, the big old door uh, that is uh, shut to Avatar Roku's chamber. Um, I love that we get to see um, Sokka really contributing in, you know, like his plan mode and being like, yo, it's like, all right, let's take these like oil from the lamps and, you know, we'll make these, uh, you know, take the animal skin bags, set them off at the same time. And it's like, we really get to see, again, this character building, he learned something from his dad and is applying this in such a unique and creative way that Ang and Katara, frankly, just did not think of and would not have been able to come up with. <laughs> and he really is so, in- like, even when it fails, he still finds a way to make it work for him. Yeah. You know, and that's what's really so impressive about the ingenuity and genius of Sokka is, you know, he's able to recognize you know, he, he recognizes failure. And at the same time, he recognized that it, 
it might still benefit him somehow. And that's really what a lot of engineers do sometimes. I mean, how often do we hear about the accidental invention of something based on research for other technology? Mm. You know, that's kind of reflected in this, how Sokka specifically designed uh, those, you know, little uh, bags to go off and open the door. And when it doesn't work, it still ends up gaining them entry because they basically, you know, dupe the fire sages into opening the door for them enough for Aang to get inside and speak to Roku. And it's, it's, it's cool because, you know, Sokka really ends up kind of being the hero in that moment. And it's one of those really unsung things because as much as we look to him as the comedic relief, you know, that could not have happened. Aang would not have spoken to Roku had Sokka not attempted this. And it's, it's, he doesn't really get the attention he deserves in that moment. Well, it's, it's, it's showing his value to the team. And it's like, you know, it is cementing the fact that, you know, it, this is, even though Katara and Aang can, you know, do bending, Sokka brings something to the team that they don't have. And it makes a well-rounded team. And it's, it's just such a great way to further reinforce uh, his character. Um, but I, I want to keep rolling with this. And, you know, obviously, Aang gets in through the door. It's, uh, you know, he gets in there and the door shuts behind and the stakes go up with Zhao's arrival and Zuko's arrival. And suddenly Aang is standing atop a clouded mountain and he is speaking to Avatar Roku. And... This is where Roku gives him, like, basically his his main mission. Uh, we talked about it when we did our Boomy episode, how Boomy tells Aang, like, look, you're the Avatar, you need to learn all four elements. That's what you gotta do. Okay, so he knows he needs to do that. He's gotta go make sure he learns waterbending, earthbending, firebending. But Roku is saying, look, not only do you have to do that, but there's a comet coming by summer's end and not even the avatar can save the world if Ozai and the fire nation utilize it. And suddenly it takes the stakes that were, okay, we have a chosen one type character who needs to learn these different, like, you know, forms and he needs to be able to travel the world to, okay, we have a very defined timeline and not only does he have to do something that's going to be incredibly difficult by learning the four bending like styles, but it's also now he is going up against something that could mean just the end of everything if he fails. Well, and it, it certainly does change things because, you know, when we eventually learn about Roku, I mean, he talks about years of training. Yeah. Years. And while Aang is a master airbender, he obviously, you know, he suddenly goes from years to months in order to um, learn the, the elements. And, you know, it's, I'm not going to lie, at the very end of the series, I always wondered if Aang ever kind of like revisited places to kind of like brush back up. Like, hey guys, I know I kind of like breezed through here and sort of like, you know, took what I could and ran with it, but maybe I should do this right because <laughs> you know it, it it it's it's interesting like the idea that he's supposed to condense years of training and focus and meditation into into several you know short months um basically into several sh- seasons is is impressive and daunting and you know here's this 11 year old kid who at the beginning of the episode was you know 
well, not the beginning of this episode, the beginning of the previous episode was jumping in clouds and soaking himself is now learning that he has, you know, less than a year to master four elements that previous avatars really couldn't. Although, I don't know, Roku kind of suggests that it's been done before. The only thing I can think of is the first avatar. We haven't really learned enough about prior avatars to know if there's ever been anything like this before. Well, and I think a lot of it too is, you know, it's this idea of, you know, it's like when your back is against the wall and I think it goes across the board. It's like if you if you get thrown into the gauntlet with something, if you have like deadlines that you have to meet for projects or things like that, like, you know, at the end of the day, you are just going to have to do everything that you can to get it done. And the thing is, Aang has everything kind of going for him being the Avatar in terms of he has kind of like an innate ability to just be talented and pick up on stuff. But, you know, all of the other avatars, they, you know, at least the ones we know of, lived in a more stable world where they could take their time with that, where there wasn't a nation that was eliminated and there wasn't another one that was under siege that, you know, they could like, go to these different nations and learn. But of course, over the generations of avatars, I'm sure that there were other instances where avatars had to learn very quickly given, you know, who knows, world-ending scenarios and everything. Um, But, you know, I just, I love that conversation between um, Aang and Roku because we get to see, finally Aang gets that teacher, but it's so brief and so fleeting and you can tell that Aang is just, he wants to, he has so many questions and he wants to find out everything and he wants to just learn as much as he can. But Roku is just doing his best to not only say, by the way, here are your objectives, but you got this. Not only are you incredibly talented, but you have, you are the avatar. You have all of these past lives here with you to help you. And I love that it's like, it's raising the stakes, but it's also Roku just trying to also calm Aang and tell him he can do it. Worst solstice gift ever. <laughs> For real. Like, when you think getting a fruitcake is bad, I'm pretty confident being told that, you know, you have to master all the elements and defeat the Fire Lord before the comet. Just saying. Maybe it is. Worse than having to protect a building and hostages from ger- German terrorists? Um, Probably worse than killing the only person, only fire sage in the temple with feet smaller than your own. Or, you know, walking around and possibly, you know, bare feet on glass. <laughs> Just saying. I have truly and, lost and you know, count. It, it's... <laughs> got to be obsidian too like they're in a volcano it's got to be sharp jagged obsidian everywhere it's not even glass just obsidian everywhere in the volcano so similar i mean come on their house is on fire clark yeah yeah absolutely but um it it, it's certainly a very intense moment i mean you really kind of feel for ang in that moment because you know the beginning of the series already opens up with pretty dire news that you know ang has been been essentially in this weird hibernative state for a hundred years the fire nation's been warring with other nations and they 
wiped out the they air need nomads. to be stopped <laughs> yeah and, and his people are extinct you know all this stuff and it's it's just like insult to injury at that point learning that he has less than a year to do something about it or else you know they'll be able to harness the power of that comet to essentially uh destroy the last real threat to the fire nation um that, that's a lot for an 11 year old kid you know and mm. you know even with the badassery that follows where Roku essentially kind of inhabits Aang and breaks him out and defeats everybody and kicks butt and magically melts off some shackles without burning metal to people's flesh is pretty impressive. Some um, real Ark of the Covenant type of deal there. I know. <laughs> I, 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 when I, I remember the first time I saw those shackles melt off and I was like, that's no, that that that's awful. That That's so unsafe. Just, like just, it's magic, but no. Just, like I said, just becoming a fly in the ointment there. Uh, Zhao, a fly in the ointment, you know, a bejeweled monkey in the wrench. <laughs> oh, man. Welcome to the solstice party, pals. Yes. Welcome to the party. Yes. But yeah, uh, you know, and just Aang, uh, you know, kind of leaving out there through Roku inhabiting him. But also, it's a reminder, too, of the power of the Avatar. And what I love, too, is that this is also Zhao experiencing firsthand the power of the avatar state because you know Zuko and Iroh saw it firsthand uh in the second episode of the series but you know Zhao has only heard reports and he was even scoffing at Zuko and like you let an 11 year old kid stop you and now it's like he just saw firsthand the power of the avatar and I feel like that on top of what you're saying earlier uh what you were saying earlier Kristen and Susan about how he handles defeats. It's like now his back is especially up against the wall and it adds this kind of desperation to him that honestly really gets to the point of why he would try to kill the moon spirit because he is dealing with forces that are so beyond him and so beyond his power and control and it frustrates the hell out of him. And we see that when he has all of the sages arrested too, like he feels that defeat. He failed to capture Zuko. He failed to capture the Avatar. He saw how powerful the Avatar was in, in escaping and, destro- and destroying um, the the Fire Temple, you know, and he takes it out on others. So, you know, while we saw that calm, collected, confident Zhao in the beginning, now we see the angry, impatient, hot-headed Zhao that we've kind of, like, started to get accustomed to. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, I, I want to kind of wrap up this with any other thoughts that you guys had in terms of revisiting these episodes, any new insights that you had, things that really stood out to you, um, or just things that you uh, had a newfound appreciation for. Um, so in all seriousness, getting away from my German terrorist puns and my <laughs> terrible uh, Christmas traditions of, you know, watching a Christmas vacation over and over again, which I've chased. Um, I think this episode is exactly what it subscribes to be, what the winter solstice is. The winter solstice is literally the mark and the transition of the year when, you know, we go from having, you know, our shortest day on record. Um, and then we start just essentially elongating our days slowly, steadily. And, you know, it also is always providing a point of change. Like, you know, Colin mentioned earlier in the, and he said like, you know, a lot of saviors or, um, basically, uh, you know, God, like 
entities are born around this time or they're somehow celebrated around this time. And to be fair, I mean, it's it, it kind of marks what Aang is supposed to do. He's supposed to be theoretically the savior of this um, this world. And, you know, this is a metamorphosis of anything that, you know, it really takes it from being that happy-go-lucky childhood show to, oh, crap, I, I, I got a duty now. I got to get this done, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it's, and, and you see all the characters pivot slightly. And, you, you know, we, we get a lot of pivot moments in the series from Mike and Brian, like, significantly over time. But this is that first real pivot we see that, it makes us all start to go, whoa, yeah, okay, wow. There is a bigger story here than just, hey, oh God, this kid woke up after being in some kind of crystallized element for over 100 years to shock and surprise. The Fire Nation terrorists have taken over the Nakatumi building and now he must save them all. Um, thankfully, he does have some shoes on right now. Just saying. <laughs> I, I just to add to that, I think that is such a great point. And, you know, I always have like always told people that the storm is one of the biggest pivot episodes of the entire series. But now rewatching this and after this discussion, I realized that the storm would not have had the impact that it did without this without these episodes, because it's giving us that initial pivot to set us up for that intense character-based episode in the storm and raising the stakes even farther because, or even higher, because, you know, this is where a lot of that comes in. And that, that is such a good point. And now seeing that, I feel like every episode we revisit, we're always like, wow, this is so much more important and so much more significant than we realized <laughs> well, at the I mean, beginning. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the overarching story as it stands as a whole, right. And the holistic view of the entire story, you know, and this is everyone's probably like, wow, she stopped making jokes now and actually became serious. <laughs> um, I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll get back to my jokes, I promise. Um, you know, every bit of the story is not only the characters evolving, it's also watching them grow because they are kids for the most part in this whole thing. Um, but again, back to every good savior story too, every good savior story or every good story where you have the, the protagonist and the antagonist, you have these moments where they go from being a character that really doesn't feel themselves all important to being tasked with some insurmountable um, goal. And, you know, eventually they do have their downfall, be it either a near-death experience or death experience in which they would come back to life of some sort or manner. And then they, um, they essentially become stronger because they have a fear. So they realize that, you know, the true cost of their failure and they then learn from learn from the fear because you know they garner courage from the fear because you know fear is really not the absence of courage is just the knowledge that there is something greater than oneself mm. so you know at the end of the day um it was inevitable that we would get an episode like this in the story the question was when and honestly as opportune time goes this was probably the best time for them to introduce something 
around this period of the time. I think it it culminates so well with how seasons change and how things change and lives change that it, it was a perfect blend. Mm. And it was the right time to start the pivoting, to start the change, to start, you know, introducing that there is something greater than Aang. And, you know, he's just on the tip of understanding that he doesn't quite understand that. I don't think he even quite gets it until after, much later after the first failure of Day of Black Sun. Mm. Like, I don't think he fully realizes it until then. Mm. With that said, you know... um, does anyone think this turkey's a little dry? <laughs> what about you, Kristen? Any other uh, kind of final thoughts on these episodes? I mean, it, a, a lot of it's already been said. You know, I, I do think that with the symbolism of change, I mean, it's something we see a lot of. I mean, with the first Winter Solstice episode, it really kind of hammers away at the... It, it kind of preps the the following episode not just in the fact that they have to go see avatar roku but the fact that you know we're seeing the imbalance in the world because we very much think of the imbalance as the fire nation defeating others but you know being a very spiritual and somewhat nature-based show as well especially with um uh how these different cultures uh rely on animals to some degree whether it's the original benders or their companions uh seeing the imbalance of nature with Hay and everything really kind of helps to, to prep us for what's to come, what Aang needs to do, because it's not just, you know, setting things right on a political and economic scale. It's, it's nature, it's the spirit world. It's all these things that have fallen out of balance while he's been gone. And it's all these things that have to be righted and it all kind of builds up and leads up to this ultimate, you know, statement by Roku about the need for him to do it, not just at his leisure when he finishes learning the elements, but before the Fire Nation reaches this pinnacle point where they can just finish their war and be done with it. It's, it's, it is huge. You know, when you mentioned the storm earlier, I really do view the storm as big on character building more than anything, because it really gives us background. It gives us more context. It is, it is really important from a very character-based perspective to where this episode is essential to the the main plot of defeating the Fire Lord. So, you know, they both have strong values, but for different reasons. While this does have character building, it hugely advances the plot of the entire series because now we have a deadline for the series. They're, they're, if we're going to defeat the Fire Lord, it has to be before the comet arrives during the summer. Mm-hmm. So it uh it, it it's definitely a, a very strong uh, episode because it really sets the tone for the remainder of the entire series at the very beginning essentially, mm-hmm. um, and it, it it's a lot. It's you look at that and it's it's a lot for a kid. I mean, the the ending where the three of them are together on Appa and Katara and Sokka and um, you know them are riding away and they comfort Aang they have to because here's this small child that they've just met and he's so happy-go-lucky and he basically just got the worst news ever Mm. and you know they've experienced a lot of trauma you know Katara really took her mother's loss seriously um Sokka really took you know his duties as a brother and his father leaving and all that stuff. They've, they've both experienced a lot. And while it's not the same of, as what Aang's going through, they can probably recognize his, his emotional disturbance 
um, and and how hor- horrified he feels of this daunting task he has before them. Because, you know, to some degree they understand it. Sokka took on the mantle of, you know, man of the house, and then Katara took on the ro- a, a very motherly role at very young ages, and those had to be daunting tasks for them. So while they certainly don't have the level of responsibility that Aang does, I do think that they are appropriate people to comfort him because they do kind of understand that taking on a bigger mantle than you're prepared for kind of scenario. So it's, it's, it's really nice that Aang has those two. Cause I mean, even when Toph joins, I mean, they all have some kind of trauma to contribute to. And that brings some perspective to the group that helps them grow together so much. So throughout the entire series. And of course, Zuko much later. So it's, a uh, it's intense. It's, it's heartfelt <laughs> and, uh, it's a wonderful episode. Yeah, and just to kind of, you know, close it out too, I mean, what you just said, and I I think that the end of that part two episode, they're all flying on Appa, the moon is eclipsing them in the background, and Aang is sitting by himself to the left, and Katara goes over and wraps him in a hug, Sokka joins, and Momo flies around, and Appa lets out a, you know, a groan, and it just, it, it is this... I love those moments in the episodes because it really it shows the importance of that connection and sense of family that they have and how important it is for them to have that with what they are tasked with doing and the hardships that not only they have faced before but what they are facing right now. And yeah, I think you guys really hit the nail on the head with just how it all reflects so well with like the winter solstice spirit and honestly just you know after doing the research and talking about it today it's like it just again my appreciation for the show grows every single time i revisit it and like now understanding all of the little details that mike and brian brought into this winter solstice you know like two episodes and the different cultural influences that they implemented even down to, you know, Iroh in the hot baths. <laughs> and it's just, it's incredible with like the details that they put there. And uh, it has just been, it's just so phenomenal to see that. Um, so that is gonna, that's gonna wrap things up for us. Um, again, thank you so much, uh, Susan and Kristen and Kevin, of course, uh, before he had to, uh, to leave. And um, uh, a happy, winter solstice and holiday season to all of you guys um i just also want to do another shout out to all the folks who have just been subscribing and listening and rating we really really appreciate it we love you guys and just love that uh there's enthusiasm for the podcast um and uh we we love doing this and just hearing uh the fact that others love it makes it even better um and uh, remember you can uh, reach us uh, a couple different ways uh, you can like us on Facebook at Legend of Portalcast. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod, and of course you can email us at Legend of Portalcast at gmail.com. And you can listen to all of our episodes on iTunes and on Stitcher, or go directly to our website, Legend of Portalcast.com. Um, and guys, uh, again, a happy winter solstice and holiday season. Uh, we'll be uh, releasing this. Uh, this is coming out on uh, the 31st, and we are super excited for 2019 and all of the awesome Avatar discussion 
the news that will eventually come out about the live series. We are so pumped. And uh, guys, thank you again uh, for listening. And uh, Susan and Kristen, thank you guys uh, both for for co-hosting tonight. Yay, Merry Solstice. (laughs) But for now. A bunch of the happiest nuts this side. Wait, yeah. (laughs) Well. I'm tired. (laughs) Let us live. We're the jolliest firebenders this side of the magma volcano. yippee ki firebender. 